This is Channing Martinez, and it's Tuesday at 3 p.m., and you're listening to Voices from the Frontlines on KPFK 90.7 FM, 98.7 FM, Santa Barbara, and streaming live at kpfk.org. Today, Voices from the Frontlines is actually bringing to you a remotely recorded show from the comfort of our homes using high-quality dynamic microphones. This is our first time recording during this California quarantine for the coronavirus, and we're trying to take every precaution to make sure that we don't actually spread the actual virus to anyone and that we ourselves don't actually catch the virus. And so we are trying to make Voices from the Front Lines relevant to that you know, effort during this actual quarantine. The first thing is that I want to make sure that you are fully updated on how to access our podcast and how to access Voices from the Front Lines and to, you know, even play up your activity with the radio show of not just listening, but actually taking part. So Voices from the Front Lines can be found on our website, VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com, and we encourage you to go there to sign up for our mailing list. We actually send out a newsletter every Tuesday before 12 p.m. to let you know what the show will look like for that day. You can find Voices from the Front Lines on all of the podcasting sites that you can think of, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and other podcasting sites. We'd love to hear from you, so send an email to eric at Voices from the Front Lines. And this time, we're actually asking that you send letters with some of the following asks. And we do have some real asks. The first thing is that we're trying to speak to community-based social service groups and groups that are having campaigns around the coronavirus and even the exasperation of conditions given the context of the coronavirus. And we want to highlight their work on Voice from the Frontlines. And if you have any of those connections, please send us an email right away. The last thing is that Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be talking more about the medical information that you need to know around coronavirus, and we'd love to speak to medical professionals who have time to speak to the public via radio, and so please send us letters to that effect as well. Today, we'll be joined by Gina Womack from Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children for a great conversation with Eric Mann. It is a conversation between two organizers, so get ready, get set, get everything you need, and get ready to take action following this show. You can learn more about families and friends of Louisiana's incarcerated children on their website. Go to www.fflic.com. Here comes the sun, little darling. 
comes the sun, I say it's alright. It's alright. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Mann on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Uh, as you know, during the whole coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic, and it is a pandemic, we are not going to be in the studio at KPFK. So what's happening is that Channing Martinez and I have a pretty good hookup now with a Zoom conference and a professional microphone and like our own recording studio. And we're going to be sending this via some technical thing to KPFK that Channing knows and I don't. And then they're going to run it tomorrow. So when you hear it tomorrow at three, you don't even have to know this, but I'm telling you. So that's what's going on. The show goes on. We're very happy. So our first guest is, is really a very important person doing very important work. Now, what we're going to be doing, as you know, on Voices from the Frontlines, is we don't have any analysts telling us we only have people on the front lines who know what they're doing. And one of the great people on the front lines really is Gina Womack. I met Gina in, was it, I'm afraid, when was the year, the year of Katrina? 2005. 2005. I met you yep. then. A, a five of us came down about six months afterwards. And I wrote a book called Katrina's Legacy, White Racism and Black Reconstruction in New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. And given that the Strategy Center and I are very Afrocentric in our worldview, the infliction of pain on Black New Orleans is like a, a plague from the white ugly gods or something, you know? So in the middle of that is Gina Womack and friends and families Families and friends. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm sure you've been heard that before. Sorry, we got <laughs> tricked. Families and friends of Louisiana's incarcerated children. Yes. And think about just that title. So, Gina, nice to have you on Voices from the Front Lines. Thank you for having me. So, Gina, we were talking a little bit off the air about when Katrina happened you thought there wouldn't be this level of catastrophe again, or that you were making preparations for it. So tell us about what preparations you were making and how the COVID-19 virus just created a whole new set of things that I can say none of us know how to deal with. Right. So, um, you know, it's really interesting because this is, we're 2020, so we're 15 years um, almost 15 years um, since Katrina happened, and um, about 19 years because we passed our Juvenile Justice Reform Act in 2003, and Katrina, um, you know, threw a wrench in, in the reform even at that time, right? And so um, it was it's really ironic, too, because we were making great strides here, um, trying to revamp the Juvenile Justice Reform Act Implementation Commission, really um, 
putting us back on the road to reform, to talk about smaller prisons, regionalization, you know, getting rid of the, trying to get rid of the prison towns where you have the, the larger prisons built in remote areas far away from uh, family members' homes. So I was really hopeful that we were going to be able to begin the conversations again um, and, and put on the forefront that we've you know, had um, a lot of good work that has, has transpired. Um, there's no need to totally reinvent the wheel. Um, there are lots of reports that already talk about what our young people need, what our families need. And um, I was really looking forward to trying, to, you know, to moving forward. And then this happened. The coronavirus came and, um, and, and threw a wrench in all of that. And so we find ourselves, well, we found ourselves 15 years ago in a panic, in um, a reactive state of having to now, again, say what should happen with our um, young people. You know, let's not leave them locked in in in, in prisons in, um, in in cells and cages. Um, let's you know jump ahead of this before the virus gets you know young people get infected inside of these prisons where they have no space to self um, to do physical distancing. Well, well Gina uh, in Los Angeles, we just signed on to a terrific letter with some great initiative of, of groups in the city. This is about demanding that they release the, the, the kids. They're demanding that mass release of prisoners, uh, nonviolent prisoners, people with, um, you know, I have to read it more carefully, but there's a series of categories that would only leave a few people there and then say for the few people, you have to treat them not just humanely, but well. Um, is there, is Flick, how much is Flick talking about getting the kids out at this point? Yes. Um, actually, we worked, uh, we do work with um, Youth First, and uh, we put together a, a, a similar letter with over 20 or so, close to 30 organizations in the Louisiana area to pretty much do something very similar, right? Um, to We sent it out to the governor, to the uh, Department of Health, to the juvenile um, judges, the chief justices, and to the secretary of the Dep um, Office of Juvenile Justice, um, calling for the release of young people who are serving who are there for nonviolent offenses, the one young people who have certain illnesses that puts them greater at risk to definitely not um, reincarcerate, you know, to, to definitely stop the um, detention, detaining of the young people. Um, if we needed to have court to hold court uh, virtually and, and, and such, um, we did not, we heard back from, Arlene's Parish um, and their information that their plan was inadequate. So we sent, we started a petition and we are still 
um, circulating the petition to get, you know, as many names on that petition as possible to keep our, our young people safe. Well, here's the thing that our experience has been that, and you know, just being that the petitions, the letters, they don't care unless it's backed up with something. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying the letter, it's, it's, we call it, you know, that a letter of record. You have to send a letter of record, which you're doing. Uh, my question is, are there any elected officials who, who want to go to the mat for this? Because in L.A., um, we have a chance that there are right. a few elected officials who would be open to this more than just, you know, we're, um, in a minute, Channing, I'll tell you a little bit about that plan, but I mainly want to focus on you. I'm just asking, how many black elected officials are there? How many so-called, I know there's this out, but um, what do you call them down there? We don't, I don't even like the word progressive. There's no, I don't know what it means. But is there any black elected official who's really wanting, willing to be on the front lines? Right. Um, we haven't yet... Um heard back from any at this point. Um, I think, you know, folks just seem to be everyone, everyone is stretched and, you know, we're, we're caught in this situation where, you know, I mean, the, the virus, we're, we're, we're definitely moving up in the numbers. Um, and, and, you know, three weeks ago, we didn't have any cases and, and we're definitely up in the numbers and have so many deaths and we're open in the convention center. So a lot of things, um, it's happening and it's unfortunate and it makes me sad that, uh, we haven't been able to get the attention that we need. Um, and our young people are, um, kind of on the back burner. Right. There are some things that are happening, like uh, one of our district uh, jurisdictions here, um, one of the, the public defense office in our 22nd jurisdiction filed a petition, and um, the judge is that he wouldn't let them all go at once. However, he's working with the individual family members um, to try to uh, release some of the young people. And so uh, we're hearing from some families who are trying to uh, put plans into place so that they can receive their young people at home, which they desperately want to have happen. Um, but, you, you know, you need a stringent plan. And right now, everybody's lives and, and livelihoods and their faith is up in the air, right? People are losing their job on a regular basis. Um, you know, and then so many things are happening in our communities that leave us very uncertain for what the outcomes could be. The voice you're hearing is Gina Womack, and she's executive director of Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. Very good organizer, of a long-distance runner. I mean, if we knew each other in 2005, uh, which we did, and then I came back in 2000, 10 years later, to do my second Katrina book, uh, 10 years later. Um, so let me go in three different directions at the same time, or maybe at one time. Tell us about um, the Lower Ninth Ward. How, when I went there, 10 years later, 
it was devastating. I mean, I thought it was going to be rebuilt. And there were a lot of just abandoned areas. And there wasn't, uh, you know, is that true? Um, some of the night ward has been repaired, but not to its full, uh, the, the way it, it was. And um, I actually haven't been in that area in a minute. But, um, you know, again, um, some, some places have been restored, but definitely not enough. And when you see um, some restoration, what you're finding is that there's a lot of gentrification that's happening in our city, not just in the, in the lower Nightwater, you know, the Nightwater, you know, just in historically um, black neighborhoods, especially like Treme, right. um, you are seeing where uh, the, the neighborhoods have been totally gentrified even, you know, and wow. so that's just um, really sad. And so like uh, there's this continual pushing out of, uh, people who have made New Orleans what it is so that people would want to come and live here are not able to live here. So our musicians are struggling and um, our, um, you know, like, I guess, gig workers and and the like have really struggled to maintain. And so, like, our cultural bearers, our long-term families, um, holding on to family property has become... Uh, really hard to do. And so you just continually see families um, being pushed out of uh, their, their, their communities and homelessness has become rampant. And um, yeah, and it's just been really, um, really hard to, to watch and um, just the constant fight and the shifting of the old New Orleans into what everyone is calling the new New Orleans. Right. Um, and it, it just makes this, and so I, I, it's, I, I shudder to think on the other side of this, what is going to happen, right? And because, you know, like, I mean, it's been great. I see a lot of fundraising happening um, for gig workers and the like. However, you know, um, if you don't have a sustainable income, which, you know, you already didn't have before, and it's even worse, um, what's really going to happen to this city? You know, I... Hold on a second, Gina. I just want to say the voice you're listening to again is Gina Womack, but you're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming on the web at kpfk.org. And also you can check out past shows at voicesfromthefrontlines.org. When you click on, there'll be a link where you can register and get our weekly emails. It would mean a lot when you register because it lets us know you're out there. You know, uh, Gina, one of the things that's, I don't know, beyond words, is that the, 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 system, the system's hatred of black people, in my opinion, is just, uh, you know, we had a little moment during the civil rights movement 
where the system was a little bit taking notice and I think there's been a phenomenal backlash against the civil rights movement and now yep. and now every natural disaster is is a political disaster for black folks. Yes. Right? And a political opportunity I hate to say it. Like for people yes. for money right now, people with money are going into the stock market and buying yes. stocks low. They're buying houses yep. low. They're buying everything low. And the people who are coming out, I mean, $1,200 is, is really enough. They just want you to buy stuff to keep the stores open. They don't care about you. Yes. So, right. so we don't even know what to say about it, at least to say it, that Exactly. This was an overwhelmingly black city of 500,000 yep. people at one time. And what's the population now? Um, uh, not quite that. Um, I think of close to 400,000. Yeah, right. It's, um, down, it's down under 400,000. I didn't mean right. to put you on the spot. So, <laughs> you <No>. know, uh, <laughs> but the point is it's down at least 20, 25%, but the black community is, is down more. So, yes. um, so there's one other question. So I want to go there. We get to the lower ninth. We got to the, the uh, oh, have you been following the fact that the during this whole thing with the coronavirus, uh, some people at first who didn't take it seriously was well, just like the flu, and which is ridiculous. It's a terrible, terrible. If you get it, it's horrific. Uh, the symptoms, even if you get through it. So Dr. Fauci explained, no, 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 I, I'm sorry, he's the best person. I watch him every day. He's the head of the National Health mm -hmm. Institute. Mm -hmm. And thank God he's throwing himself in front of Trump. You know, right. please, right. please. Uh, Donald, you know, Donald Trump will say, it's doing great. This is the it's greatest. Great it's, it's the greatest virus. It's the greatest virus. virus. I'm, I'm, and I'm doing great. This is like yes. the best virus we've ever seen. And then Fauci gets in and says, we're all going to die. The world's right. coming to an end. And, right. But specifically, he said that on the virus, uh, I'm sorry, on the normal flu, the mortality rate is 0.1%. That is to say one-tenth of 1% 1 of the people who get the flu die. He said on the coronavirus, the normal mortality rate is 1%. But I just heard that in New Orleans, it's 5%. Right. Which is off the chart mathematically. Right. Have, you, have you been, I know you got a lot going on. Have you been following that? Are there people we could talk to about that in the public health work? Um, what are you hearing? I mean, I've been following it to some to some degree, definitely, and of course, because again, when you are in a city where you have um, poverty and our families are suffering from various illnesses like diabetes and um, all these underlying causes, um, it's it's not surprising. It's it's another um, way that we need to say that we need to be able to take care of. Um, those folks that um, live in poverty, we need to make sure that people have health care. I mean, um, like over the last 20 years um, since I've been doing this work, 
I've been hearing the same thing from all of our families. And so it caused us to put together a three-point platform. It's like if you want to help our families, like here's what they've been saying. Basically, um, we need to work on, you know, our three points are around poverty, mental health, and um, the education system, like mental health and the health care system, right? And so um, if we really wanted to help our black communities, like we would address those issues, right? We, we wouldn't be, you know, you remember they were doing this side-by-side -side thing, like how people have changed side-by-side, -side, like, you know, you at 10 years ago and what you look like now. Right. And then we put together, um, there was a meme that I saw that I really um, loved and made me really sad was like, you know, minimum wage 10 years ago, minimum wage today, right? Um, and so it's specifically like in, in, in a place like New Orleans where um, um, uh, gentrification has come in and like the, um, the, the minimum wage hasn't changed, but like our, um, the cost of living has increased dramatically. Rent went, you could probably get a one bedroom for like $500, which is probably like $1,500 today, right, right, right? right? And just like you were saying earlier, yeah, you were bouncing all over the place and I was trying to keep up because I was like, I have a point for that and then I lost it because now I'm a senior citizen. I can't keep up with everything. But, <laughs> you know, think, thinking about like, um, and who can, you know, live off a of minimum wage and then afford that kind of rent, right? And there's, you know, the, the, all the statistics that show, you know, mo the majority of you are having to make all of these choices. Do I um, pay rent or do I eat or do, you know, all of these different things that um, people who are living in poverty have to deal with. And there's something else I wanted to make sure we touched on before we move is not only um, after <clears throat> Katrina and what, what really alarms me is the freaking education system, right? Like after Katrina and you just, you know, the, the folks came in and ripped apart our education system. And, um, you know, fired all of our um, um, mostly, you know, black school teachers and brought in all of these, you know, um, young, mostly white Teach for America teachers that, um, you know, and, and, and our school system has just been completely torn apart under the guise of school choice. Um, and it's not faring any, any better. Right. But that is another way that, um, you know, the wealthy got to pick the schools that they really wanted their kids to go to. So, like, some of the schools that were doing um, better, um, like uh, Lusher, which was always a, a top school, you know, um, Tulane came and um, part, there was a partnership. So you have these university partnerships. And so they say some of the school, the seats for their employees, right? And so I fear what is going to happen to public school? And I, it has been on my mind for a very long time that um, public education will never, has never been the way it was supposed to be, right? Um, so as, even as we knew it wasn't as it should have been for all students, for every child, um, I fear that this is this, this, um, pandemic will allow for, um, you know, it to be even worse, 
right? Because if we get even an ounce of what has happened in New Orleans across this country, and we saw it also in Puerto Rico after their hurricane, you know, and um, I'm not 100% sure where they are at this moment, but I do know that schools are continually closing. And so um, I feel that this is going to be, this is to me a way to rid the schools of black and brown you know, the unwanted learners. Um, well, let me tell you some thoughts. Go ahead, Gina, please. No, you go ahead. No, well, go ahead. I, I think one thing that I'm thinking about is that, uh, and, you know, I need to go back and read my own book because I realize my factual, I used to know the New Orleans stuff by the back of my hand. And, for instance, just a few things. I know that there was a very powerful teachers' union that was mm-hmm. doing a very, with a overwhelmingly black teachers, yep. that was not just doing a good job for teachers, but in my book, I learned that um, if anything was going on in the city, the teachers union would be there marching with it. And yep. so if you, well, the first thing they did, so here's my point. Again, in the Katrina's Legacy book, there was a group of people that met in Houston ruling class people who met in Houston under George Bush who were already planning to get rid of at least 20 or 25% of the black population in New Orleans. They had a complete community plan, including stripping out the public education system, privatizing Mm it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when Katrina came, they were like a right-wing army that was all ready to go. And so yep. they just stripped the, the unions. I mean, it was unbelievable. So here's the, th- here's the problem. In the 1930s, we would have all been in the Communist Party. We would have been. And we would have, at least I would have been. I'll, I don't want to speak for you, Gina. But, but we would, a lot of us would have been in a Communist Party where we had a strategy. And we would also, just like they'd be meeting secretly, We'd be meeting about how, you know, because you have to do the education system, the, the gentrification, the kids in prison, the climate problems, the COVID-19. Now, in the 60s, we didn't have a communist party. But we were very pro-communist at the time. And we were right. learning from Cuba and from, you know, China and from Africa and Patrice Lumumba. And um, when I was with Cor and SNCC, that was pretty disciplined. We had a national march on Washington to demand stuff of this government. We don't have CORE and SNCC and SCLC working together at that level. We don't have a CORE. We don't have a SNCC. We don't have a, a Dr. King. We don't have Students for Democratic Society. We have individual good yep. groups like yours, like mine, the Labor Community Strategy Center. But there's no way that you or any one group yep. can take on a plan that's not just Bush, I mean, not but Bush, but now Trump, and I'm sorry to say some people in the Obama administration too. Yep. What do you think of that? Yeah, I agree with all of that. And, you know, the, the, the system has done a, a great job of dividing and conquering, you know, um, and, 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 and we're so... Um, so busy working 
on the the various issues. And so, like, and when I think about the civil rights movement, you know, things were put together and we were working together. That's right. Right. And then you, you know, that got passed. Cause then I, I, I liken that a lot to, um, to the work that we did around the closing of the prison and ushering in of the juvenile justice reform. Right. Right. And so I, I would look at this cause I was trying to figure out like, Oh my God, like, you know, I was a novice at really the organizing pieces and the legislation and then what was really happening. But that's all I remember is that this was, um, a wonderful thing that we were doing, that we were making sure that we had listened to the families, we understood that, you know, we needed to, in order to um, cut this pipeline to prison, we not only had to do the work in the, from the back end to, um, to, to release the kids from prison, because where would they, what would, what would really change? We actually had to do the work also on the front end. We did all of the national research. We knew we needed a community-based alternative program. We had to have things in place for these young people to get involved in. And when they struggle, they need to have their, you know, services. They need, you know, have their needs met. And so we passed this reform and it was beautiful and 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 I just remember thinking once it passed, it was just this beautiful stained glass. This is how I just described it. This beautiful stained glass, um, um, glass, right? And right. and once it was signed on the dotted line, and it became raw, it then just fell on. It just fell and broke into all these pieces, and wow. then people, you know, in groups and 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 whatever picked up these pieces and went back into their silos. So literally like the last, I feel like the last 15 years, um, I've been trying to figure out um, like how to keep talking about this, this work and, and folks would talk about it and then slowly it just went away. And I feel like that's sort of like we know the civil, but at least we know the civil rights movement happened and the laws were there, right? Because it was, it was talked about and, and taught, unlike our little piece of legislation, like people know about it if you were around at the time, um, but it wasn't so grandiose that you had, it had to stay in the forefront of folks' mind. And so I'm sitting here like over the last 20 years and I'm like, well, what do you mean we should do so and so? We did that. We talked about this, and it was called this, that, and the other, right? And it was just all these things that were put in place that kind of, as you change administration, as you change lawmakers, right, as you right. change organizations come and go, as funders shift their funding priorities. That's right. Right? Like, you know, and it's like, oh, this is the new thing. And I'm like, that's not new. Like we, it's the same, you know, but we changed the, um, the, the title of it, like what we call it, like, you know, so we went from, we couldn't just say we have, a, um, two, you know, we're locking up more, uh, black and brown people. You have to call it disproportionate minority contact. You can't talk about what? racism and, you know, like you get all these terms that are more pleasing to, to talk about because you can't talk about the main issues. And then the, the funding streams um, seem to, like, they would shift their funding priorities and it's, it, um, and it, it, it's just, it, it becomes chaos. 
So organizationally for Flick, I mean, our history was this juvenile justice reform. Right. And for the last 19 years, that's what we, it's like, if we need this juvenile justice reform, I constantly call it at 1225 until I really realized like, oh, we could uh, at 1225 every year. Right. And so it, the, 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 that particular law just didn't exist in its, or it, its full form because things have been repealed and changed. And so when you have various organizations working in silos, it's hard to stay on the road because I always say, well, shoot, we should just still be fighting for civil rights, right? right? If we were still having that same conversation, um, well, we are having it and it's just um, more dispersed, but if we were having that holistic conversation and um, the groups were all moving in the same um, direction, and we are to some degree, but we kind of picking and choosing. And sometimes I found, in my experience, that a lot of times unintentional, we we may have unintended consequences that actually set will set us backwards. And then the lawmakers are pulled in various directions because it's like who gets to the lawmakers first? Who has more access? Right. Slow down and a little bit. You're doing great. You're doing great. Uh, again, the voice you're hearing is Gina Womack, executive director of Louisiana's friend, Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. I'm getting it worse each time, and I know it. It's just what we'll call a flick. And she's a, a longtime civil rights organizer and a really fine organizer. And the frustration you're hearing, uh, you know, sometimes we want to be on the show and say, you know, we have a great plan and it's what's going on. But the way Gina's talking, by the way, is that's how organizers talk. You know, what's funny, Gina, is when, when you know, a foundation comes, they say, how are you doing? You go, oh, we're doing great. We're doing great. Doing great. Uh, we got this six these and four of those and two of those because that's right. the answer they want, right? Yeah. Then when you get to an organizer's get together, how are you doing? Not so good. I got right. members leaving. This one doesn't want to do this. Uh, you know, I got problems there because uh, the organizers have a very introspective psychology, psychology in order to keep doing this work. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to reinforce you, Gina, that the way you're talking is beautiful because that's how we talk too some days. In right. LA, we call it superficial solidarity. That all these groups say, yeah, 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 right on. Yeah, you come to my dinner, I'll come to yours. But I don't really care about your group, and you don't care about mine. So that's been even in L.A. So we're now in this push L.A. coalition that's very hopeful. Right. Uh, we're trying to work on the whole issue of getting the police out of South Central in terms of the uh, Metro Division, which has been a, just a, a center of black attack, I mean, a, a police attack on blacks. But if we move the division, that's not going to change the attack so much. So what we're doing is having a retreat where we're going to try to ask everybody to say, honestly, what do you really want to do? Right. Honestly, what is going on? If you don't like us, why? If we have a problem, can we work this out? Right. Because we're getting, 
the way you described it is no different than any city in the U.S. Exactly. I know no city where there's a true citywide, not coalition, movement of people who can turn out people, who will move on another issue that's not theirs in a right. big way, in a big way, who will follow up on victories won, because that's another problem, is that you win a victory, the system didn't really give it to you. It just gave it to you enough to make you Thank go away. You. Exactly. You know, and then exactly. you go home and say, oh, my God, I got this beautiful stained right. glass window. And they're laughing. They say, these people got no energy to keep it up with us, you know. Exactly. Give them some so it, it must be. And painful. then they just shift it. And that's exactly what happened because it was like, okay, so now we're going to tackle the education stuff. And so, like, we were on the front and the cutting edge of the whole school to prison pipeline because it's like we got this JJ reform. Part of this is the education stuff. You're suspending too many kids. That's right. So, we're, you know, we have this whole trajectory of the issues and you're trying to fight them one at a time. And then you turn around and um, someone has repealed parts of the legislation right. and you're, you know, unless you're at the Capitol all the time, which you're not, right. you know, you may or may not know it. And so it makes it very, very complicated. And you're right. Like we, and it's hard to have these holistic conversations and it's, it's not intentional. Everyone is, um, because it just depends on where you enter the work. What was the, like, if, especially a lot of the organizers come from their own personal experience. Very interesting. You know, and, right. And so then it's what their experience is, and that is uh, what we're going to, you know, tackle. It's really hard to think about holistically, you know, and I'm always sitting at the table. I'm like, you know, stop talking about us as we're not a whole person. You know, like, do I not have to eat? Do I not have to have a place to live? Do I not need to a job? You know, I need medical um, care. I need to care for my kids. And so I find it always interesting because sometimes, like, we've heard funders say, well, you're trying to do too much. And it's like, but how can we organize people if it's like, like, what am I supposed to say? I know you have, you're hungry, but... You know, I need, I'm only, <laughs> right. you know, like, right. um, you know, I'm, I can only do this piece. Like I got a, a, a mom, you know, she's trying to get our child home and we're trying to put together a, um, a plan, but there's all these issues that, you know, she's having to, to come up with, but the judge expects you to have a whole home, you know, a, a return home plan, but the same issues exist. There's still not enough mental health for me to tag into. You know, I still need to go to work. The, you know, the children still are being um, pushed out of school because every child is not a traditional learner and there should not be a one-size-fits-all education system because every child does not learn the same way. I knew I raised three children and I, I was like two out of three of my children weren't traditional learners. Well, well, let me ask you a couple of questions, Gina. Uh, I'm looking at the time. We're still doing pretty right. well. Channing, we're going to still keep going. Is that all right? Absolutely right. We're about 46 after the hour, and so we have about right. 15 minutes left. 
Right, because we started a little, right. So here's a couple of thoughts, Gina. And for our audience, let me tell you where this conversation is going. That um, all of us, the way Gina is talking is the way the strategy center is talking, the way uh, dream defenders are talking, the way uh, community coalition is talking. We have members who we, we get together with them and we say, this is about the holistic problem, the inability of funding, the lack of a movement. So this is more of a problem day. So Gina, you know, as you know, we work a lot with high school students and then with uh, black adults. We're in the black community, but we're also in three high schools that, and even in high schools, the black student pushed out. So we're talking about some schools with almost none and some schools that used to be black, 80% black are now 25, 26% black. So you're working with students, they're bright, they're thoughtful, and then you get to know them and they say, well, actually, there's some really bad stuff going on at home. And actually, I need to see I'm having depression and anxiety and I need to see some kind of psychiatrist, but I have no medical plan. And actually, my dad hasn't worked in about three years. And when you hear each family, right? Um, when you say families and friends, the pressure on the family is beyond what the family can hold. Right. right? And you talked about three kids, but so I have two questions for you. When you said you were a novice, Take us through when you got involved in the movement, how you got involved in the movement, because did you get involved differently? Why do you have a broader perspective? Okay, so um, I came to this work um, 22 years ago. I was just um, separated um, three months after my third child. And I, my background was office management, um, accounting. So I started working at the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana as the office right. manager, doing the books and, you know, keeping the office together, just whatever, you know, once you start working in a nonprofit. And so that also meant that I was answering the phone. And so I was beginning to hear from the the parents and I mean, David was like, you know, hey, is it cool? We're gonna do this work. We're gonna reform this the system in about three years. Is that fine? And I was like, okay, cool. You know, I can do this three years and then go work somewhere else <laughs> um, because we were, you know, they had filed a lawsuit around the conditions of confinement. But then when um, I started talking to parents and finding myself in tears along with them because what I was hearing was unreal. You know, I was like, how is it that um, parents are looking for help for their kids and they can't find what they need and they're being introduced to the prison system, right? Hold that right because, there, Gina, just for a second. So yeah. you're on, I have to keep making these station, not to have to, we want to. No, so you're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, and I think, you know, during this very difficult time when many of us are uh, self-quarantined, sequestering, staying at home, whatever you want to call it, staying at home a lot, I hope you'll listen to Voices more and go on kpfk.org. And before you go ahead, uh, 
Channing, how tell us about the podcasts? Sure. So you can listen to our podcast on www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com. You can also find our podcast recording of each show the Thursday following the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and many others. That's cool. Now, Gina, when you go back, or you are here, see, you, you're so present. I said, when you go back to New Orleans, you are in New Orleans. And you, sound like, <laughs> you sound like in my, we're sitting at the table together. So when you go back to your, uh, your, your work, try to get a lot of publicity for this interview that's coming up tomorrow. See, it's going to be playing tomorrow at 3, which is 5 p.m. your time. If you could put out an email to people and tell them about voices, and uh, so I left you. I just had to do that. I'm sorry. Now you can go interrupted for a while, for about eight minutes. About you just got separated. You had the, a child three months old. Yeah. And sorry, I didn't interrupt that. But please go no, ahead. So I know because where was I? But I think I was like, oh, so the the thing that really struck me was that. You know, if you are if you are a parent, mostly um, you know living in poverty, and you don't have complete access to whatever treatment and services you need, like um, you're more likely to get introduced to the the the, the prison system, right? The the juvenile system, because we had this feeder. It was called Families and Needs of Services. And some parts of it is voluntary, and I'm using air quotes, and then non-voluntary. So basically, um, and it's run by the Supreme Court. So they're supposed to have access to services. And so let's say your child is acting up at school, um, and and you might get, you know, a a social worker or a counselor or whatever, and they may go, like, you know, you might be like, well, my son um, or my child might be being... um, willfully disobedient or um whatever and they will Gina, be like, Gina, well, you because i'm sorry again get us to how you got, became an organizer because you got about three or four minutes i'm sorry okay well that's the part of it I so know, when I i'm know. listening to the right so the parents are saying that their children are getting connected to the system um through you know because they needed services and so once um i, I thought we should meet as a support system and then once we started meeting at parent with other parents through support, they were understanding that it wasn't just their issues, that this was a more of a systemic system, a systems issue they wanted to fight. And so um, we, we started, you know, working with um, JJPL. We joined, you know, started this campaign around um, close to who and now because the parents are like, no, we want all the, prisons closed, we want services in our communities, you know, we want to be able to um, have treatment and programs and the things in mental health services for our young people. And so the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, We started organizing, Um, Flick became an organization, and um, that's been, you know, since 2001, uh, 2003, 2001 is when Flick came Flick, and I've been organizing ever since. And tell us about Zocho just for a minute. 
Zochu, um, I, I blame everything on her. I love Zochu <laughs> to death. Um, she Tell was actually a, I know, right? Zochu Rivera. She was right. actually a, a student, um, and she was interning in our office at that time. And I, um, I always tell it it's her fault because I feel like I said, let's have a support group. And then this <laughs> light bulb went off in her head. And it was like, oh, yes, let's do this. The parents and then let's start this campaign. And um, and so she was like, and you'd be great as the organizer. And I was like, I'm the office manager. And I was cool with that. But, um, you know, she worked with us and I learned everything I know, know from her. I'm sure I still have things to learn and she's a dynamic organizer and she is now in Atlanta and they were doing some work in Atlanta around some prison work and working with women and um, undocumented cool. folks and she's still doing amazing things and so so we're going to leave it there because we yes. could, I, I can see uh, Gina, you and I could do the show for three hours. I know, hours, this is right because there's a lot to talk about there's like, a lot it's not to talk about right so this is how our show works. Uh, I used to say when I drank, I don't drink anymore, but it's like two friends sitting in a bar and we're just listening, you know, we're just taping it. But this felt like this, you know, leaving aside the alcohol. Uh, it did feel like two friends, two comrades, two organizers talking. And yes. Gina, uh is a whole nother ball wax. She's great. And, and you're your, your own version of yourself and you're great. And Thank you. you. You are. You're one of the most important organizers in the country. So if people want to help you financially, if people want to help you by uh, any way, how do they reach you? If they want to learn more about you, if they want to uh, support your work in any way. Yes. Um, definitely go to our website um, and find out more about our organization. It's um, ffliccom Org, families and friends of Louisiana's incarcerated children org. We're on Facebook, um, we're on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and we um, would love lots of support getting the word out. We have a petition that's online that um, people can sign and let their voices be heard. People can call our governor's office and, you know, let them know that, uh, um, taken care of and they shouldn't have to sit in, in prison and, and, and catch um, the coronavirus and um, there's a quick quote that from one young person that we heard from and he said I just don't want to die in here not in here um, oh. and so our children are frightened our parents are frightened and we need all the help that we can get um, to help take care of our children because as James Baldwin said, for these are all of our children, we will profit by or pay for whatever they become. That was the voice of Gina Womack, the executive director of Fleck. This is Eric Mann signing off. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, 90.7 FM. This is what we do here, folks. These are Voices from the Frontlines. And Gina Womack is a great voice from the front lines in New Orleans. Go on flick.org and check them out. And Gina, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you both. I'm looking forward to speaking to you all soon. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Take good care, everybody. And more, much more than this. I